0: From NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. It's been known exposure to a family of widely used chemicals called phthalates can cause abnormalities in male sex organs in lab animals. Now for the first time, a study shows exposure to phthalates can alter genitals in human babies.
1: The boys were more likely to have less fully descended testicles and also shorter or smaller penis size, and their scrotums were smaller and less distinct.
0: Common chemicals in baby boys this week on Living on Earth. Also, why one of nature's most hated birds deserves a
2: break, the magpie reconsidered. We see them come in and take a robin nest, you know, eat the babies, and we're all upset by that, and we think of them as these nasty thieves kind of thing. Well, in fact, they're not thieves. They're just trying to raise their own young. Those stories are just ahead. Stick around.
3: Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
0: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As the world's mayors gather in San Francisco for World Environment Day and celebrate the 60th anniversary of the United Nations, a renewed debate over weapons in space underscores how the Earth indeed is but one giant ecosystem. Today, there are U.S. satellites to survey enemy movements with ultra-high resolution and global positioning systems to guide aircraft, naval vessels, and ground forces. Many of these space capabilities are defensive in strategy. But like presidents before him, President Bush is now being urged to fund research that could lead to the deployment of offensive space weapons. With me to talk about just how feasible such weapons might be is Ashton Carter, He was Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Policy under the Clinton administration, had a hand in writing the 1996 National Military Space Policy, and now teaches at Harvard. Mr. Carter, hello.
4: Hello. Good to be with you.
0: Um, Please give us a brief overview of the kinds of space weapons that are being developed today. I understand there's everything from satellite-destroying lasers to Earth-targeted uranium missiles or rods.
4: Oh, most of the concepts that people are talking about, they've been talking about, all the time I've been in defense, I start, I was a uh, young pup, worked for Casper Weinberger. People have been talking about these same things. There are lasers that are in space that shine down on the ground and start fires, uh, missiles that are launched from space to the ground, and there are uh, just... Uh, lumps of material or rods of metal that you deorbit and they come screaming down to the ground and bump into a building. So there are various ideas of this kind. You said most ideas are old. What new concepts
0: might be kicking around that are encouraging these kinds of discussions?
4: I really don't think, I, and I'm a physicist by training, I don't think there are any technological breakthroughs that have occurred. Uh, I think you're seeing a renewal of an old debate rather than the dawn of new technology in this field. Um, If you put a laser, you can't just park a laser over your enemy, because if you just put a satellite over enemy territory, uh, it falls to the ground. So you have to put your weapon not over enemy territory, but in orbit over enemy territory. And when a satellite or a weapon is in orbit, it's here this moment. But then in a few minutes, it's over some other country. And in a half an hour or 45 minutes or so, it's over Australia. And it doesn't do you any good. So the fact that the Earth is round and that uh, weapons have to be in orbit means that for every weapon you want over your target, you have to put lots of them in orbit. And so these are the kinds of reasons. And, of course, it's very expensive to put things in orbit. Uh, These are the reasons why it's much easier, cheaper, more efficient to drop a bomb from an airplane than to drop a bomb from space.
0: How much further can we go now in militarizing space without putting weapons up there?
4: Um, Well, we can go a very substantial way. For example, uh, one thing that's on the drawing board is satellites that talk to each other by laser beam and create an Internet in the sky. Another is a space-based radar satellite, uh, in fact, a constellation of them that can see through clouds. And so you would have a continuous record like one of those cameras at a bank. Mm-hmm. Then if you have, a, like, for example, a terrorist attack, you can watch the terrorist drive away from the site. You'll have a record of it just like you have a record of a bank robber robbing a bank. There are lots of interesting things that would improve the performance of our forces and that fall short of actually putting weapons into space. Um, Who are our potential competitors in space? uh... Well, the Russians still have a large military space program, as the Soviet Union did, and the Soviet Union really was trying to compete with us one-on-one. Russia is now too poor to... Continue that program, and you see uh, the gradual decay of a lot of the former Soviet Union's military satellite constellations. But while that's going on, the Chinese are up and coming. They're launching more and more satellites. The Israelis have military satellites. The Japanese have military satellites in space. The Europeans do. So we're by no means the only one. But just as we have the most sophisticated and proficient military in the world. In general, uh, it's also true that we have the most proficient and sophisticated military space program of any country in the world. Now, there's no ownership
0: or any international boundaries set in space. So, what would we be violating exactly if we were to put weapons up in space?
4: Well, we would not be violating anything if we unless we put nuclear weapons into space. There is a treaty that prohibits putting nuclear weapons into space. Uh, otherwise, it's perfectly within the law to put a weapon in space, uh, the United States has thought twice about doing so, mostly because it's not economical or useful to put weapons into space, but also because we are so heavily dependent upon the use of space ourselves that it didn't seem like a good idea to call attention to that fact or to stimulate others to put weapons into space that might disrupt our satellites that we're using for military purposes.
0: Now, in the press, it would seem that there are a number of strong advocates for uh, offensive space weapons uh, in the Bush administration right now. Um, What do you make of that uh, push for offensive weapons in space? And at the end of the day, what do you think it says about the Bush administration's security agenda?
4: there are those in the Bush administration, certainly those on Capitol Hill, who believe that there are good options, effective options for deploying missiles in space. They're always enthusiasts to do various uh, things in the military system. Uh, you remember President Reagan had Star Wars. And in the end, none of that was deployed for the very simple reason, not because anybody was wimpy, but because it didn't uh, work very well and cost a lot of money.
0: So from your perspective, this isn't something that's right or left, but simply unworkable?
4: It's largely not right, not left. It's just uh, not attractive as an investment. And I think that a lot of these schemes will collapse of their own technical and budgetary weight rather than because one side or other of the policy argument wins.
0: Ashton Carter is a professor of science and international affairs at Harvard University and was assistant secretary of defense for international security policy under the Clinton administration. Uh, Mr. Carter, thanks so much for taking this time with me today.
4: Good to be with you.
0: Studies by the Centers for Disease Control show that most people in the United States carry in their bodies concentrations of a family of synthetic chemicals known as phthalates. Phthalates are commonly found in plastics, pesticides, and personal care products like shampoos, soaps, and makeup. Phthalate exposure has been linked to malformed sex organs in male lab animals. Now, for the first time, there's a human study linking mothers exposed to phthalates to genital birth defects in male infants. The research is in the journal Environmental Health Perspectives, and its lead author, Dr. Shauna Swan of the University of Rochester Medical School, joins me now. Dr. Swan, what exactly did you find?
1: Well, um, we found that when the mother had higher levels of certain phthalates in her urine while she was pregnant, the boys produced had incomplete masculinization. Um, Specifically, we found that a measurement that we call anagenital distance was shorter when the mother was exposed to higher levels of certain phthalates. So what is that? Well, the anogenital distance can be measured pretty easily in young baby boys from the center of the anus to the upper insertion of the penis. It's about twice as long in boys as in girls. In addition, the boys were more likely to have less fully descended testicles and also shorter or smaller penis size, as measured by the volume, and their scrotums were smaller and less distinct.
0: Now, just because this distance was shorter and uh, the genitals were smaller uh, doesn't necessarily uh, mean that this is a bad thing, uh, does it? I mean, some people are shorter than others. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Or or is it a bad thing?
1: Having a shorter anogenital distance is a reflection of less virilization, pushes the boy toward the direction of the feminine. And um, this is something that in rodents has led to a lot of problems later in the rodents' lives, such as decreased fertility, decreased sperm count, and eventually testicular cancer.
0: Now, your study says that uh, as many as a quarter of the women in this country have levels of phthalates in their bodies higher than the levels you found in your research. Uh, Uh, Tell me, uh, uh, to what extent do these chemicals accumulate in body tissue, and and what's the pathway for exposure to them uh, in adults?
1: Right. Well, actually, for most of the phthalates we studied, and particularly the four that we found associated with genital development in boys, they are present in almost every female uh, of reproductive age in the United States. So they're extremely common. And the pathway is really unclear. They can come in through dermal exposure, uh, through cosmetics, for example. You're putting on hand cream and so on. They can come in through your food or through your water. So we have ingestion. We have dermal exposure. And inhalation is probably the least likely, although they are in hairsprays and perfumes as well. So we have uh, multiple uh, routes of exposure and um, multiple sources as well.
0: What, if anything, could be done to reverse this stunted development of boys' genital tracts uh, in the womb? Uh, uh, To what extent are supplements available that mothers could take to counteract the effects of these substances or, or, or substances that maybe they should avoid?
1: Um, nothing is known about whether this is reversible, but from all the evidence we have, at least in rodents, this is a permanent change. There's probably nothing that can be done once the development has been established. As to what a woman could do to prevent it, that's very difficult because consumers cannot know at this point what's in the products they buy. So if you go to the store to buy uh, makeup or, or some other household or personal care product, you will not know whether there's a phthalate in there. I think an action that could be taken is we need to press for more consumer right to know about what's in the products that we buy and put on our bodies and give to our children.
0: Shawna Swan is a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Rochester. Her study is published in Environmental Health Perspectives. Thanks for taking this time with me today, Dr. Swan.
1: Nice to talk to you, Steve.
0: Coming up, from costs to conservation, turning the threat of forest fires into an opportunity to generate greener electric power. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Across America, there are tens of millions of acres of forests that are dangerously overgrown with scrub brush and small trees. Dangerous because too much of this dried out vegetation can turn what were once healthy and limited natural fires into catastrophic blazes that roar through habitat without regard to homes and property. Removing this overgrowth without clear cutting is expensive. So the hunt is on for ways to find a use for this wood that will help pay for its removal. Eric Whitney of KRCC in Colorado Springs reports on efforts to turn forest waste into electricity.
5: In Colorado, it's easy to find forests that look and feel like they're about ready to burn.
4: Yeah, this would be pretty typical, except the one thing that's interesting about this I noticed is for some reason there was a lot more pinion back further to the west of us.
5: Dave Tooley, a fire ecologist with the Federal Bureau of Land Management, or BLM, shows me one such forest on the edge of Canyon City. Tooley says the ongoing drought in the west has weakened the pinyon pines here, and a beetle infestation has finished off about a third of them. They're just standing there, dry, combustible, and dangerous.
4: Look how thick it is with a wind-driven, hot, dry day type scenario, which is pretty typical. We wouldn't have a chance of doing much with anything in this landscape.
5: That means a fire could easily sweep into the forested subdivision next door. So the BLM spent hundreds of man-hours cutting down and shredding the dead pines on land next to the homes to create a buffer between the trees and deny wildfires fuel. It's incredibly labor-intensive work, but it has to be done, says the BLM's Mike Gaylord.
6: We're putting this money into these properties to try to reduce the risk to people's lives and, and property. This field treatment is very expensive on a cost per acre basis. So we're looking at all the tools we can, trying to to generate a list of entrepreneurs that will enter the business and drive costs down.
5: Entrepreneurs are hard to come by. That's because the overgrown vegetation that needs to be removed for fire safety typically isn't the big trees that sawmills are willing to pay for. So nationwide, the federal government is spending nearly half a billion dollars a year to clean up overgrown forests. But even that much money is barely making a dent in fire danger. So a small percentage of the cleanup budget is being used to try and create markets for what's now considered a burdensome waste product. One company that signed on is Aquila Energy. It runs this mid-sized power plant in Canyon City that burns about 500 tons of coal a day. Plant manager Bob Gaines says that last year, the power plant started replacing about 3% of its coal intake with excess wood taken from local forests.
7: Two big silos here that go up about five floors. They hold 300 tons of coal. By the time the wood and coal get in here, they're pretty well mixed.
5: The Aquila plant offers wood suppliers the same price as it pays for coal, and that's motivating entrepreneurs to go out and get the overgrown trees and bring them here. Gaines says adding wood doesn't reduce the plant's generating capacity, but it does create some hassles. And it has to go through the same chain of coal handling chutes
7: and bunkers and things that were designed for coal, not for wood. If we get too many big pieces, then it tends to plug up the the coal flow.
5: The plant also had to amend its state air quality permit when it started mixing in wood. Regulators found that burning wood doesn't really change smokestack emissions much, but operational changes of any kind at a power plant trigger several weeks worth of red tape to get approval. That's enough to keep most companies from even considering taking on a new fuel. So if wood is trickier to handle, opens the doors to more regulatory oversight, and is no cheaper than coal, why bother?
7: Well, green tags or renewable energy credits are a, uh, basically a nationally recognized certification that we are generating some portion of our electricity with renewable energy, in our case,
5: biomass, waste wood. The Green Tag certification allows Aquila to sell the renewable portion of what it generates on the open market. And it's an expanding market. More and more states are mandating that utilities generate some power from renewable sources. If utilities don't have enough, say, wind farms or hydroelectric power of their own, they look for certified green sources to buy it from. Many government agencies and companies have pledged to buy green power, too. The market for green power in Colorado is poised for rapid expansion. Last fall, voters passed a referendum that requires the state's large utilities to get 10 percent of their power from renewable sources by 2015. Utilities get extra credit if the renewable energy comes from an in-state source. So here in Colorado, there's potential to stimulate more projects that turn forest waste into electricity. Well, we'll have to see. Bob Detman works for the U.S. Forest Service in Denver. His job is to help people in the five-state Rocky Mountain region find ways to make money from all the small trees being removed to reduce fire danger. Detman says people's first concern is about air pollution. He says burning wood in a power plant is much cleaner than getting rid of it with far riskier and expensive controlled burns and certainly cleaner than an out-of-control forest fire. But Detman admits to a few roadblocks. The technology is there to burn this wood uh, cleanly,
8: but the economics of... uh cutting it, skidding it, chipping it, hauling it to a site for utilization. That's the real challenge. We're putting a lot of focus and emphasis
5: on how can we reduce those costs and uh, you know, make it all pencil out. Federal grants and subsidies and tradable green power certificates have made burning wood for electricity pencil out for the power plant in Canyon City, where plant manager Bob Gaines is working his way through this 800-ton pile of wood chips.
7: This is ideal right here. That's perfect size stuff. The things that give us fits are are the little half inch and one inch diameter Ponderosa branches.
5: Gaines is optimistic that his plant will continue to burn wood even after the subsidies run out.
7: I'm starting to get phone calls now, hey, I've got wood, (laughs) and right now I can't take it. So I think the supply situation is changing. And as we get to where we can burn more wood, we'll help generate more supply, really, just because there's a market. So it's, it's evolving. It's changing from month to month, and, and it seems to be getting better. So, We've been kind of pushing it for th- four years or so, and now it's starting to take on some momentum of its own, which is I'm kind of glad to see.
5: Whether that momentum will carry over to other coal-fired power plants depends on a lot of variables. New pollution restrictions on burning coal or higher natural gas prices could make wood power more cost-competitive, as could a growing market for renewable energy certificates. But for now, there are just a handful of power plants burning wood in the U.S. Federal officials hope that this one in Canyon City, Colorado, will serve as a role model for turning forest waste into a new energy source. For Living on Earth, I'm Eric Whitney.
0: An internal study by the Monsanto Corporation showing kidney and blood abnormalities in lab animals fed its genetically engineered corn is stirring controversy in European nations set to vote on approval of the product later this year. The study was leaked to the British newspaper The Independent on Sunday. The genetically engineered corn called MON 863 is designed to ward off damage from rootworm, a voracious pest. The Monsanto corn is already widely grown in the United States. Application has been made to the European Union for approval of MON 863, but an OK is on hold due to calls from European scientists for Monsanto to release the full 1,000-page report for public scrutiny. Among them is Dr. Brian John of the organization GM Free Wales. Dr. John, tell me, why is MON 863 a cause for concern?
9: But it could be dangerous because um, the, uh, the the clinical people that we've spoken to say that the sort of signs that are occurring uh, in the, the rats, that these are very possibly pre-cancerous conditions. What, what they seem to be doing is there seems to be something that is causing... Um, changes to the immune system, and that, uh, of course, when that happens, the defensive mechanisms start to kick in, and the -the down-the-line consequence of that may be uh, a cancerous growth. Now, we don't know what these links are or what the chain of of events may be, um, but um, we know enough about this sort of thing to be extremely worried, and and that's why we're arguing that great caution has to be used before, uh, before this product is assumed to be safe. It may be safe, but a great deal more science has to be done, and it has to be put in the public domain before we can come to that conclusion.
0: Can you describe for me the process of how a genetically uh, engineered food product is approved in Europe?
9: Uh, each nation-state has its own advisory bodies which actually assess applications and comment on them when they're submitted. And then these comments all go forward to um, Europe-wide bodies. In the case of MON863, um, the application goes to a committee called the European Food Safety Authority.
10: Mm-hmm.
9: And they take the comments from all the different um, Uh, national bodies, look at all of them, Uh, they may ask for particular pieces of research to be done by the applicant, in in this case Monsanto. And then they sit down and come up with a piece of advice uh, saying either that this product is okay or that it's not okay. Um, And this advice then goes through to the Commission. And again, it has to be approved by the member states of, of Europe And um, uh, in the case of MON863, the member states have not yet been able to come to a view on it because there is widespread disagreement about how safe it is.
0: What would you like to see happen as a result of all this controversy over this genetically modified corn in Europe?
9: I would like to see some decent science done for a start um, with, with genuine peer review and, and, and um, comprehensive studies undertaken as to uh, the effects of genetic modification on plants which are going into the food chain.
0: That's Dr. Brian John from the organization GM Free Wales, And joining me now is Mark Shapiro at the Center for Investigative Reporting. He's written extensively about the genetically modified food industry. Um Mark, if I have a new genetically modified product I want to bring to market here in the United States, uh, where do I go to get approval? You have to go to the USDA, which will review your new product. And
6: if your new product contains its own insecticide, if it contains a poison that's going to uh, poison a pest, then you have to bring it to the Environmental Protection Agency. And the Environmental Protection Agency relies on studies conducted by the companies themselves as to the toxicity of your particular
0: new variety in the field. Now, what about uh, the food safety issue? Do I have to take this to the Food and Drug Administration to get approval to sell it to the public as a, as a foodstuff?
6: The answer is no. The FDA has what it calls voluntary safety consultations with the biotech companies, and they review periodically the safety data supplied by the companies. But not once over the past 10 years... Has it refused to permit development of new GE crop varieties to move ahead?
0: Now, what percentage of crops in the United States are genetically modified?
6: Right now, it's about 50% of the corn in America is genetically engineered. Uh, close to uh, 90% of the soybeans are have been genetically engineered. And a rising number of uh, genetically engineered wheat, uh, genetically engineered cotton, genetically engineered tomatoes. A whole array of new crops are now being introduced that are genetically engineered as well.
0: Why is risk assessment so weakly funded in the United States? Why don't academics look at the effects of genetically modified uh, crops coming into our food system?
6: The USDA, which is the primary funding mechanism for uh, research on uh, crops, does not officially consider genetically engineered crops to be any different from any other kind of crop. This is very important philosophically that there is in the United States uh, uh, government a belief that there is no difference between the
0: genetically engineered crop and the traditional crop. What would happen if it was determined that a particular genetically modified crop uh, wasn't safe? What would that that do to our, our, our agricultural production?
6: It would have devastating impacts on American agriculture because genetically engineered food is so embedded now in our agricultural system that the very idea that this type of uh, crop could actually have serious health effects would truly unravel a system that has emerged over the past uh, 10 years that has grown increasingly reliant on genetically engineered food.
0: Mark Shapiro is with the Center for Investigative Reporting. Chris Horner, a spokesperson for Monsanto, told us that while the research in question has not been reviewed by any U.S. regulators, MON 863 has been approved in this country by all relevant agencies, as well as by the Canadian government. He also told us that the MON 863 corn study is not secret. It was provided in full to regulators in the European Union, and scientists who have looked at it say the, quote,
11: abnormalities are reasonable statistically and not outside the norm. The current controversy over Monsanto's genetically modified corn seems to confirm everything my father had warned. GM foods are different from non-GM foods, and they may cause health problems. That's journalist Anthony LePay. His
0: father, Mark LePay, the noted toxicologist and medical ethicist who helped shape many of this nation's environmental and health policies, passed away earlier this month. Anthony has
11: this remembrance. On the second night of the Republican National Convention, my film crew and I were taking a break when my cell phone rang. It was my sister who told me our father's brain tumor was late stage and there was little hope. I sat down on 32nd Street numb, bathed in the glow of a huge electronic sign welcoming the GOP faithful to New York. How ironic, I thought, to get the news here, surrounded by a spectacle that represented everything my father had fought against. My father wasn't a political man. He didn't go to rallies or raise money for John Kerry. He was a scientist who spent his working life opposing corporations and government officials who put profit before public safety. He consulted on over 100 lawsuits, including the battle over silicone gel breast implants, Agent Orange, and the Woburn, Massachusetts water pollution case dramatized in the book and film A Civil Action. He was chief of California's hazard evaluation system in 1980 when an infestation of the Mediterranean fruit fly threatened citrus crops. The state and industry pushed for spraying Malathion, an insecticide with known toxicity to humans. My father was a lone voice of opposition. He leaked a memo about Malathion's dangers, and after the state began spraying, he resigned in protest. In 1998, my father and Britt Bailey wrote Against the Grain, Biotechnology and the Corporate Takeover of Your Food. The book warned that the Monsanto Corporation's new agricultural products, Roundup Ready Seeds and the powerful herbicide that sprayed on them, posed unacceptable risks to the ecosystem. Their first publisher backed out when Monsanto threatened to sue. They found a new publisher, the aptly named Common Courage Press. My father believed in what's called the precautionary principle, the idea that if the outcome of an action is unknown and the consequences might do harm, it's best not to proceed until all the risks are known. For him, GM crops failed that basic ethical test. Today, we splice fish DNA into our strawberries and DNA from bacteria into our corn with no long-term studies in how it will affect us. He saw it all as a massive experiment for the sake of profit. This week, Point Arena, a small town in Northern California, where my father taught science to kids at a charter school he helped found, voted to ban all GM food and animal products. The ordinance may not make much of a difference. The area is full of enviro-friendly types as it is. Still, I think it is a fitting tribute to the lessons of my father's life. To protect the planet, you have to take a stand, no matter how big or small.
0: Anthony LePay is the executive editor of GNN-TV, the website of the Gorilla News Network. His father, Mark LePay, died on the 14th of May. For more information about Mark LePay and the link to his Center for Ethics and Toxics, go to our website, livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. If they ever held a popularity contest for birds, there's one that would we'll probably lose. The story of the much maligned magpie is just ahead.
3: Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and Verizon, providing 411 directory assistance for residential and business numbers locally or across the country. The Kresge Foundation, building the capacity of nonprofit organizations through challenge grants since 1924. On the web at kresge.org the Annenberg Fund for Excellence in Communications and Education, and the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, From Vision to Innovative Impact, 75 Years of Philanthropy. This is NPR, National Public Radio.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwin. Many of us look to the natural world for clues to living a more harmonious life. For instance, we aspire to those traits in animals we value, the wisdom of the owl, the noble bearing of the bald eagle, the grace of the swan. But producer Guy Han wonders what nature is trying to teach us when it starts acting like some pushy, poorly socialized uncle. You know, the one with the loud voice who moves in uninvited and threatens to eat everything in sight.
8: Ah, it's springtime in the Rockies, when a black-billed magpie's thoughts turn to love. And as you can hear, that's a noisy time of year. There's the courting, nest-building, egg-laying, followed by the defending of the new family against every dog, cat, raccoon, garden tool, lawn chair, and child in its territory. All of it accompanied by the magpie's call, which is not exactly the bird world's sweetest. Add to that a few other disconcerting traits, and magpies plunge pretty much to the bottom of the list of birds we Westerners love.
12: I don't know anybody that likes magpies. To wake up every morning to screeching magpies.
6: I'm not sure I would hate them as much if it weren't for the fact that so many other people seem to hate them.
9: We're fighting a war offense.
4: War against who? Against birds.
8: Okay, that last bit is from the Hitchcock movie The Birds, but it captures the mood.
4: In Bodega Bay early this morning, a large flock of crows attacked a group of children who were leaving... Crows, who
8: play a a starring role in the birds, are related to magpies and both belong to a whole family of unpopular birds. Kevin McGowan of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology.
2: Well, the family Corvidae encompasses about 100 species, more or less. About half of them are crows and ravens, the big black guys. And then the other half are things like uh, the jays and the magpies.
8: McGowan believes that our dislike of the Corvid family is rooted in
2: European history. A lot of cultures around the world actually like crows and ravens and revere them as you know part of their creator myth and things like that but in in europe and in, in Western European society that's that's influenced North America a lot. They tend to have a bad reputation. They're birds of ill omen. Um, they're birds of bad luck and disease and things like that. And basically that comes from the fact, I think, that uh, there were no vultures in Europe and that it was the crows and ravens and magpies that were the scavengers.
8: After a big battle or a nasty plague, the Corvids had the unsavory habit of swooping down on fallen victims
2: and pecking their eyes out. Then to add to that, the crows and ravens, at least, are black, And that, again, was a negative sort of association for Western European thought. As black as he is, the color of evil and all that sort of thing.
8: Think Edgar Allan Poe.
9: Take thy beak from out my heart, and take thy form from off my door. Quirth the raven, nevermore.
8: A century ago, magpies had a bounty on their heads. 150,000 were killed for cash in Idaho alone. Today, our cultural distaste for corvids is still codified in American law. The Migratory Bird Treaty Act only protects magpies, crows, and a few other unloved birds if they reform their evil ways. According to Rex Salabanks of Idaho Fish and Game, it's legal to control them if they peck at your screen door, eat Fifi's dog food, go for the cherry tree, or, and this is the interesting part, when concentrated
7: in such numbers and manner as to constitute a health hazard or other nuisance and uh, the main way that you can control them, obviously, is to shoot them.
8: You're not supposed to blast magpies within city limits, but other than that, the law is loose. And
7: so it's kind of like, well, does it have that look in its eye, you
8: know? <laughs> the, the, like it's up to no good, and it's about to do something uh, that's bad. Some people would say it always has that <laughs> look in its eye. Hear
12: him? Hear that? That was a rooster. That was a pheasant rooster, he who's he's right over there.
8: J.D. and his black lab are walking through his hunting preserve in southern Idaho. Did
12: you hear that rooster? Yeah. But there was one right over here, and there's one over there. There's just a tremendous amount of pheasants here, and we have a lot of quail, and we have lots of ducks here. We have geese that nest here. There's lots of wild birds, though, here, too. There's killdeer, red-winged blackbirds,
8: herons. J.D. loves birds, just not magpies. Although various magpie species can be found in numerous parts of the world, the American magpie lives exclusively in the western U.S., and this expanse of high desert has the densest concentration of magpies on earth. J.D. thinks that density threatens his other birds.
12: What's the baby ducks? See them in the water there? Yeah. There's three baby ducks there. Now, magpies will go after them if they're on land. They'll just wait until those eggs or babies just get right, and then they'll swoop down on them and eat them up. That's all they do.
8: That's why he's carrying a 12-gauge shotgun, just in case he catches a magpie in the act of raiding a game bird's nest. And it's not just the act of depredation that bothers J.D. and plenty of other people. It's the seemingly devious way magpies kill other birds.
12: Yeah, they usually travel in groups, and I've seen them where, like, if you have a bunch of quail and they've got their little babies. One or two of the birds will distract the quail, the adults, and then another two magpies will come in behind and swoop down and pick up the the baby quail. They'll team hunt sort of like a pack of coyotes or wolves.
8: A few minutes later, J.D. spots a magpie in the act.
12: Oh. Got him! Woo! First magpie.
8: He picks up the limp bird and holds it hanging by the tail.
12: They're a pretty bird. I mean, they're handsome. They're always dressed in a tuxedo and ready to party.
2: (laughs) Magpie, a bird on
8: a wire, am I? Magpies are iridescent black and blue and creamy white with a long, showy tail. By Corvid standards, they are beautiful birds. But still, people think they look flat out evil. And magpies don't mind taking that dark side into town.
4: Look, there's one right there. Right there, there's a magpie nest. Do you see it? Right by our porch.
8: My neighbors, Dave Peterson and his wife, Mary Lou Taylor, live in Idaho's biggest city, Boise, where they're worried the magpies are taking over. Dave and Mary Lou count six magpie nests from where they stand in their backyard.
4: So maybe Mary Lou's theory that there are...
1: A few jillion
4: more
8: magpies uh, than last year.
12: But
4: but I don't know if there are a few jillion more, but how many robin nests are in the same vicinity?
12: Well, see, that's the thing that I think, is that
8: the magpies are driving out the other birds. Dave and Mary Lou are generally pretty sane, law-abiding citizens, but magpies have got them fantasizing revenge.
4: So Mary Lou wants to start a magpie eradication program and she has some real clever ideas for uh, getting rid of these magpie nests, I might add. What are they? Well, her best idea is to have me hone up on my archery skills and then get a uh, flaming arrow and shoot it into the magpie nests. I checked with the uh, fire department and they frown upon this.
8: Neither Dave and Mary Lou are serious about their eradication program, but plenty of others are. People routinely shotgun magpie nests, pull them out of trees, light them on fire, or grab
11: the eggs and crush them. Get yourselves guns and wipe them off the face of the earth.
1: (laughs) That would hardly be possible. Why not, Mrs. Bundy? Because there are 8,650 species of birds in the world today, Mr. Carter. The five continents of the world...
9: Kill them all, get rid of them, messy animals.
1: ...probably contain more than 100 billion birds. It's the end of the world.
8: Yeah, that's from the birds, too. My point being that it's really hard to untangle fable, in this case film, from scientific fact when it comes to magpies, corvids, and, well, nature in general. Kevin McGowan of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology says all this
2: magpie-directed malevolence is misplaced. Partly it's because some of the things that we see them do we don't like, and we don't have a sense of how important that is to the whole grand scheme of things. So we see them come in and take a robin nest, you know, eat the babies, and we're all upset by that. And we think of them as these nasty thieves kind of thing. Well, in fact, they're not thieves. They're, They're just trying to raise their own young. In fact,
8: one study found that songbird populations actually increased as the number of magpies grew in the area. McGowan believes we label magpies and other corvids as wanton killers simply because they are big, obvious birds. And when they do something we find distasteful, we notice it, whereas lots of unexpected
2: predators in nature sneak by unnoticed. As studies recently have been putting cameras on bird nests and seeing who it is that's actually coming in and eating those eggs and and babies, what we're finding is it's predominantly squirrels. Squirrels?
8: From a rival and McGowan says nest cams have caught another
2: unlikely suspect. Deer eat a lot of eggs and nestlings of ground nesting birds. I tell you, I didn't expect that. But it's not just a question of them accidentally breaking eggs as they're cropping grass either. There's video of them actually chasing down little fledglings that are trying to run away from the nest and grabbing them and, and gulping them down.
10: Hi, Bambi.
2: Bambi 2. Watch
10: what
8: scientists say magpies are way down the list of animals that eat baby birds but like it or not our view of nature is informed not only by biology but by everything from Beowulf and the Bible to the birds and Bambi we try to understand nature like everything else through stories We cast animals in the roles of hero and villain, often unconsciously, then push them off on a narrative adventure we hope will end in just, morally satisfying ways. When nature doesn't follow the script, we often react with anger or fear.
10: Are the birds gonna eat us, Mommy? Well, maybe we're all getting
6: a little carried away by
10: this.
8: Watching a magpie pull a baby bird out of its nest, even when we tell ourselves it's part of nature, is nevertheless unsettling.
9: Why are they doing this?
8: It whispers the possibility of a cold, uncaring universe, a natural world less teacher than tormentor. So we often try to rewrite the script to save the baby bird and sentence the murderous magpie to death.
13: They'll be all around here. Yeah, they'll be down. Someone will be on the gravestones. Someone will be right here pecking at the magpie.
8: Chuck Trost has spent 20 years trying to read nature's story from a magpie's perspective. A retired professor of ornithology at Idaho State University, he's the nation's leading expert on magpies. And when he asked me to meet him in a cemetery so he can perform a magpie funeral, I'm glad to hear I'm not to play the role of the dearly departed.
13: All right, well I've got a dead magpie here and, uh, and I just put it on the ground in the cemetery. And uh, we're going to go back and sit in the car and see what happens. Uh, What I predict will happen is that a magpie will notice it and start calling. And the effect of that is it draws other magpies in. Magpies will come in from across the river and all around here. and, uh, And they'll be in the trees and they'll be down looking at this dead magpie. So it's kind of an intense thing that goes on for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and then they leave.
8: Trost hopes his so-called magpie funeral will give me a taste of what he's discovered in his two decades of study that magpies are surprisingly intelligent complex creatures. He says they have a well-defined social hierarchy they're monogamous but they also allow for divorce they'll defend their chicks against animals many times their own size and they might even have a sense of humor.
13: I've seen a Merlin uh, actually attacking magpies a flock of magpies and you just have to laugh to watch it because the magpies would dive into a bush and the merlin would take off and start to leave and one of them would chase it and they turn around and drive that magpie right into the bush again and it, it's happened like 10 times over and over again uh, and i think they were just you know they're using this merlin to show off so it's fascinating things you can see if you just have enough patience to watch
8: Trost thinks we'd all learn to love magpies if we were patient enough to watch them for a while. As we talk, magpies gather in the trees above the dead bird, calling, then begin gliding down and gathering around the corpse itself. One tentatively pulls at the tail, and when there's no response, backs off and simply stands there. Trost has an explanation for all this.
13: It's probably trying to see what killed it. And mostly, I think what it is, they're trying to see who it is, because they know each other. Magpies know each other. And whenever there's a dead magpie, that means there's an opening in the social system. And if you're a submissive magpie, you can move up one notch.
8: As a scientist, Truss can't speculate on the magpie's capacity to mourn. But watching these birds standing there among the gravestones, dressed in funereal black-and-white plumage, I can't help but wonder if there's some kind of spiritual spark glowing in those complicated little corvid skulls. If we're so quick to assign the worst human traits to magpies, can't we allow them just a little room for reverential reflection? It seems only fair. Who's to say magpies aren't contemplating the nature of life and death like us? Maybe they're just a little noisier about it. For living on Earth, I'm
1: Guy Han. Ornithology happens to be my avocation. Birds are not aggressive creatures, miss. They bring beauty into the world. It is mankind, rather, who insists upon making it difficult for life to exist upon this planet. Now, if it were not
9: for this birds... you don't seem to understand. This young lady said there was an attack on the school. Impossible.
0: Next week on Living on Earth, as the world comes to San Francisco Bay for World Environment Day, Living on Earth will be there. Mayors from around the world will gather to compare notes on how to cope with the growing urbanization of the planet. One of those cities is Oakland, California, and in West Oakland, factories and trucking are big business. But people who live near these industrial neighborhoods are left with many times more toxins than the rest of the city combined. One community group decided enough is enough and forced a polluting factory to close down. Now they're breaking ground to build a community center on the site. It's environmental justice in the movement for sustainable cities next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week with a few notes from a bird with a much sweeter song than the magpie. Phil Riddett recorded these two nightingales in a forest near Kent, England. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Chris Ballman, Jennifer Chu, and Susan Shepard, with help from Christopher Bullock and Kelly Cronin. We bid a grateful and fond farewell to our two interns, Katie Zemsef and Katie Oliveri. Thanks, Katie's. And we welcome a new intern, Sarah Williams. Our technical director is Paul Wabreck. Allison Dean composed our themes. You can find us at livingonearth.org and hear us there anytime. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening.
3: Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, smoothies, and milk. 10% of profits are donated to efforts that help protect and restore the Earth. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations and the Ford Foundation for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues and the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation for coverage of Western issues.
6: This is NPR, National Public Radio.